for the reassurance of the family bond that we have in you. We read in your holy scriptures, though we are at one time, we're at one time enemies of you, and all day long could do nothing but rebel against the truth and reality that you are our creator. And before you, every knee must bow and every tongue will confess. Nevertheless, you subdued us. You sought us when we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. You loved us first, dear Jesus Christ. Now we love you as a consequence. Because of your work, Jesus, on Calvary, we have been adopted. The price that our sin deserved has been paid by your stripes, the thorns on your brow, and the pierced hands and feet and side of your Savior. We've been adopted, heirs now, sharing in the testament, the estate of the one who has died. And Jesus Christ, in perfect union with the Father, now grants us that fellowship if we are in him. And Father, we now, having become members of the family of God, what can we do but proclaim with this song and the others, you are a good Father. And we, Lord Jesus, are undeserving, yet by the grace and the mercy of the cross of Christ, and by the work of the gospel, we have been reconciled to a holy God through the only way, truth, and life that was possible, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. As we turn to your holy scriptures, I pray that the Spirit would use the proclamation of the same to stir our hearts to thankfulness and to equip our mouths to proclaim, our feet to walk, our minds to apply, and I pray, Lord, in this, that you would be glorified, your kingdom would advance, your name would go forth, and that you would continue to ransom from yourself, from the far corners of the earth, a multitude beyond number, who would join us in praise one day, the marriage supper of the Lamb, declaring worthy is the one who is slain for my sins. Lord, we thank you for the great benefit, the blessing, the holy scriptures. I pray that you'd write them on the tables of our hearts, even as we hear them proclaimed in our ears today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. What a glorious gift it is to gather with the saints, to open up the Holy Scriptures, and to hear them proclaimed in our ears today. I pray that you would do so with me by opening to 1 Peter chapter 5. We'll consider the last half of this chapter, which is also the close of the book, verses 6 through 14. 1 Peter 5, 6 through 14. The title of this morning's message is Victorious Suffering. And if you followed along our communion series in 1 Peter, you've noticed that theme come to the fore again and again. Suffering, yet purposeful suffering. Suffering unto glory, or suffering with an end that is uh, indeed one of resurrection, ascension, indeed union with Christ that has a purpose to it in the direction that, uh, that uh, looks forward to the renewal that comes when the gospel and the full manifest kingdom of God is finally ours in its total. And so the ultimate end of 1 Peter and its proclamation and hope is yet future for us, but there is encouragement along the way. The aim of this morning's message, therefore, is to equip the church with means of grace, you could say tools, to stand victorious, you could say weapons, to equip the church with means of grace to stand victoriously in spite of trial. And even as I give you that aim, you'll, know, you'll note that Peter is not the only one, not the only apostolic voice that speaks in these ways. 
Ephesians, the book authored by Paul, comes to mind as well. Those famous texts, putting on the full armor of God, the prayer is that through this equipping, the church would stand even in the day when her faith is challenged. So Peter joins the voice of Paul in his instructions and theme in this first book, his epistle to the church in Asia Minor. Out of reverence for God's word, would you stand with me once again as we hear these uh, truths proclaimed in our ears today? Listen to God's word in 1 Peter 5, 6 through 14. Here are the Holy Scriptures. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Verse 12. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is the word of God and the close of 1 Peter. You may be seated. <clears throat> About five years ago, I was preaching through Matthew, and we were coming towards the end. In chapter 25, there are two parables that I'll remind you of. I'm sure you're familiar with them if you've read Matthew or considered Jesus' parables. Among them, you'll find two that illustrate the danger of waiting. One is the parable of the ten virgins, and the other is the parable of the talents. And one of my chief takeaways from that section of Jesus' ministry, you remember, for instance, the ten virgins, they were waiting. They were waiting for the bride to come. No one who attended the wedding was quite sure when he would arrive. And there was two ways of waiting for the bride. There was the one way where it's just kind of coasting, not preparing very much or not taking very seriously the event. And those were the virgins who were caught flat-footed on that day, and they were not able to enter in to the ceremony and the fellowship of the bridegroom because they were unprepared. Their lamps were not filled with oil. And then there were the wise virgins, on the other hand, and these were the ones who prepared and used the time of waiting well. And were no, though they didn't know the day or the hour, nevertheless kept their wicks trimmed and their lamps filled. And then, oh, the glorious day, the glorious hour when the bridegroom came, they were welcomed into that sweet fellowship of the ceremonies. And this is an illustration. This is a picture that illustrates the following truth. Waiting is dangerous. Well, I was going back over some of my study from that passage. It struck me. Uh, that is an often overlooked reality of the Christian life. Waiting is dangerous. Now, there is a time that involves waiting for every believer between when Christ was ascended, the church age, and when Christ returns. If you are a believer in this room, you are waiting for Christ's return, just like every generation since the advent of Christ in the beginning has waited for him. But that waiting from the time that you confess Christ, place your faith in him, embrace the call of sanctification, the Christian life, unto the point where he either calls you home by physical death 
or he calls us all home at once in his glorious second coming, it's dangerous. It is fraught with peril, it is harrowing, and it's easy to underestimate how dangerous it truly is. Now, this truth was not lost on Peter, neither was it lost on Jesus, nor Paul, nor any of the authors of Scripture, but sometimes it is lost on us. And this is why we need the Scriptures. Toward the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, he illustrated the call to vigilance between the advents of redemptive history by way of parable. That is to say, through the course of God's work in history, it is marked by particular spectacular interventions. God creates the world. God sends a flood. God calls Noah. He calls Abraham. He establishes the nation of Israel. There's the exodus along the way. God intervenes with the prophets. His spoken word is delivered through the mouth of Elijah. Jesus comes, word made flesh, in the incarnation, preaches the message of the kingdom. Jesus is resurrected. Jesus is ascended. The apostolic age uh, includes outpourings of the Holy Spirit, such that you probably haven't experienced in your own lifetime, but oh, we wish we were there. You see, throughout the course of God's work in history, it's marked, punctuated by particular amazing revelations of his redemptive work. But the dangerous thing is waiting in between. It's easy to follow Christ when he's feeding 5,000. People are almost compelled in like obsessive zombie-like fashion to just follow this man to the point where Jesus said, why are you here? And he understood that many of them were there just because their belly craved that food that he gave. But he had a harsh word for them. If you are to follow me, you must leave mother, father if necessary, sister, brother, close associations, be willing to embrace death, pick up the cross. This journey is fraught with peril. Following me is dangerous. So in, this, in these times between God's marked intervention in history, we have sufficient grace to stand, but we must take heed of that means lest we fall. Thus, we equip the church, or the church is equipped with means of grace to stand by turning to scriptures like Matthew 25 and 1 Peter 5 to equip us to wait. The parable of the ten virgins and the parable of the ten talents communicate proper orientation for disciples who find themselves called to faithful gospel service in the meantime, in the times between the Lord's visitations. Peter echoes these admonitions to the churches in his charge. At the end of his own ministry, in his epistle, addressing the elect exiles as he calls his readers. Peter, likewise, warns the churches that the sufferings and trials attending this, what he calls little while, between Jesus' ascension and the second coming are indeed harrowing. Now listen, without intentional preparation and equipping, the confessing church would not survive. Without intentional preparation and equipping, don't underestimate the dangers of waiting, the confessing church would not survive. But she did survive, and how? By virtue of letters like the one we read today, Peter himself has experienced the dangers of following Christ even unto death. Remember, he was confident. He said, I will never leave you, Master, in as many words. But what happened when that calling to follow Christ included that uh, hill of Calvary, following even unto death? Well, in the face of danger, underestimating the serious nature of the call to follow Christ, he, even Peter, the one-time zealous, overconfident, you know, disciple who said, I'm with you 110%, he denied his Lord three times. But now we're listening to a Peter who has been tempered. We're listening to a Peter who has been filled with the Holy Spirit. We're listening to an apostle who knows the dangers of the Christian walk firsthand. 
Now in church history, John Bunyan powerfully allegorized these themes as well in his enduring classic Pilgrim's Progress. I don't know if you're familiar with that at all, but time and again, Christian, you know, the protagonist, faces danger, peril, and sword within himself and without as he journeys toward the celestial city. One reason I suggest that classic is so enduring is because it so poignantly illustrates the truth that Peter and Jesus have already proclaimed from the scriptures. Bunyan understood what Jesus and Peter had spoken to the church. The path to glory is paved with suffering. Nevertheless, the word of God is sufficient to prepare us to endure and more. And that is the hopeful refrain that comes to the surface again and again. Though the way is fraught with danger, nevertheless, God's word is sufficient to prepare us to endure and even more. Indeed, just as the darkest hours of Christ's own earthly calling proved his most powerful moments in defeating the enemy, we think of death and hell, the grave, the devil defeated on Calvary, we also, in like manner, can be assured that in him we will be victorious through suffering as well. But we must heed the words of 1 Peter and the rest of the scriptures in order to stand. So that brings up a heading for our message today. Let's organize our thoughts under this heading, Tactics for Christian Endurance Unto Victory. Tactics for Waiting Well. Tactics for Enduring the Danger Even Unto Victory. Here's three by way of summary today. Assume Strategic Attitudes, verses 6 through 9. Number two, Realize God's Divine Intentions, verses 10 and 11. And then a few examples of gospel consolations are also given in the text, verse 6, verse 9, verses 12 through 14. So tactics for Christian endurance unto victory, in short, assume strategic attitudes. Number two, realize divine intentions. And number three, embrace gospel consolations. First of all, strategic attitudes. What would these be? Notice in our text today, we'll back up a verse and get the context. Peter is saying or two. Likewise, verse 5, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. There's our first strategic attitude, if you will. If you will. Waiting well, the Christian life fraught with danger, suffering, and trial to some degree. It manifests itself in different ways in different generations. Nevertheless, the principle remains the first strategic attitude that Peter recommends is humility. I want you to notice, too, in this chapter how he broadens his audience. First of all, he says in verse 1, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And he gives specific instructions for the shepherd leaders. He says we are to lead not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have. In verse 2 there and 3, not for shameful gain, but eagerly not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And he expands... He says, do this again in light, verse 6, of the chief shepherd and his appearing. So again, there's that inner advent uh, framework that we see in the timing of things. But verse 5, he widens his audience. He says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. So now he's addressed the leaders and those who are younger among the congregants that would be younger in the faith, less mature, let's say. He says to them, likewise, be subject to the elders. In other words, follow good godly leaders. But then he expands his audience even more by saying, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. So as Peter, likely at the end of his life and at the close of this letter, the first of his two epistles we have on record, 
He expands his audience in his final words to include all the church of God. Are you included in his audience? Yes, you are. If you're a confessing member of the church of Jesus Christ, if you've repented and believed in him, then listen, your apostle, that is one of the forerunners of your faith, is laying down for you instructions. He's laying down for you attitudes that you must adopt in order to stand. And this is a guy who knows what he's talking about. We know that Peter knows what he's talking about by his own experience, which we'll comment on a little bit along the way. We also know he knows what he's talking about by his apostolic call, which he refers to. And so, as we listen to these words, let us transcend the years by realizing they're exactly relevant for us today. We are the audience to which he writes in part when he says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. What is Peter referring to when he says, makes that statement? Well, that, he's referring to the scriptures. That comes from the Old Testament, Proverbs 3, 34. In other words, this apostle is referring to an authority outside himself, namely the word of God. He was commissioned to write and part the word of God, but he was also standing upon the word of God when he gives these admonitions. Clothe yourselves, all of you. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Notice verse 6. He continues to expound the importance of humility. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Now, a commentators brought to my attention the uniqueness of this phrase, the mighty hand of God. This phrase does not appear anywhere else in the New Testament, I'm told, but it does appear in this Greek construction a number of times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was common at the time that Peter wrote, called the Septuagint. And that phrase, the mighty hand of God, refers in the Old Testament to the act of God in delivering his people and judging his enemies. That is to say, it was the mighty hand of God confessed by Moses when he says, the power of Yahweh brought you out of Egypt unto the promised land. Moses, I believe in Deuteronomy 3.24, or 24.3, I might be getting those uh, turned around. Deuteronomy, uh, nevertheless, in Exodus 3.19 and Job 30.21, there's a couple of other examples, but this phrase, the mighty hand of God, refers to those moments where it is absolutely evident and undeniable that it was God and his manifest power that saved his people and brought decisive judgment on his enemies. Who is responsible for leading these people who had been in slavery for four centuries out of the, most, out of the strongest empire the world had known probably up until that time unto deliverance into the promised land, especially when they didn't have any food to eat along the way, their shoes had to have supernatural power to sustain a 40-year journey. The Red Sea stood in their way, and they had no GPS map between them. Cell phones wouldn't be invented for another, what, 4,000 years, five? I don't even know. A long time. Nevertheless, they were brought out of Egypt into the Promised Land, as if born on eagles' wings. Who was it that lifted them up to fly as though they were flying with eagles above the Red Sea? above their enemies around them, faster than the Egyptians could pursue, closing the sea upon their enemies? Who was it? It was God and his mighty hand that lifted them up. Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God. Is the mighty hand of God evident in your life? Who was it that saved you from your sins? Who was it that lifted you out of the muck and mire and the death of your transgressions unto resurrection, new spiritual life? It was the mighty hand of God. 
You have evidence in your own experience, believer, of the powerful divine intervention of God, lifting you out of the Egypt of your own sins and delivering you unto the assuring promised land of hope in Jesus Christ and his saving work on Calvary represented in these elements. Humble yourself before that mighty hand. You see how this gives us perspective? We can throw our cares upon him. We can cast our anxieties upon him when we realize he's powerful enough to bring a million slaves strong out of Egypt on a 40-year journey and enter them into the promised land. We realize that we have a place of sufficient help to cast our anxieties when we know and we understand that it is Jesus Christ, the hand of God, that did a miracle work resurrecting us from the death of sin unto newness of life. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so at the proper time he may exalt you. Verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So this idea of anxiousness and pride are connected. Why is that the case? Well, if you have things you're really worried about, they are frightening for a reason. They're difficulties, trials, challenges, insurmountable. Things that freak you out, make you scared, doubt tomorrow. What's going to happen if something doesn't change, right? That's what anxieties are. Who is the mighty hand that you trust with your anxieties? It's a great question. Where do you cast your anxieties? Where is the mighty hand that gives you peace of mind? Now, I've mentioned it from this pulpit a number of times, but it bears repeating. There's many quote-unquote mighty hands that raise you know, their arm and wave back and forth and say, hey, I'm a mighty hand, I will save you. The government tried to save us during this pandemic in the last year, did they not? By expediting a... Uh, a virus, or uh, uh, expediting the Freudian slip there. Uh, what, what do you call it, people? Help me out. Getting a mental block. Vaccine. Vaccine, thank you. They both start with a V. So in light of the virus, the government helped us out by expediting this vaccine. And do you remember how much hope for the future was hinged upon the pushing forward these policies until we finally get that vaccine? Cast your anxieties on the medical community. Cast your anxieties on the prophet of health, Dr. Fauci. Cast your anxieties on your governor who will protect you by giving good policies. Cast your anxieties on, you know, our... Put it, doing this collectively together and so on and so forth. That's just one example. Cast your anxieties on your insurance company, you know, because you never know and you might die and leave, you know, so you need to cast your anxieties and prepare and so on and so forth. Cast your anxieties on this mighty hand of an institution, an insurance company, a government, uh, somebody or something to save you. And really at the bottom of anxiety is this trust. If I do not cast my anxieties on the Lord, but I continue to suffer under the weight of them. In a sense, I am trusting my own sovereign hand. Upon whose hand do you deem the mightiest? Whose hand is the mightiest to save you? When you think of the anxieties plaguing us this day or your personal anxieties, who do we lean on? Do we bear our anxieties themselves? Uh, ourselves? If we bear our own anxieties, it is to trust our own mighty hand, in a sense, to save us. And so you see how humility commands us to cast our anxieties on the Lord. Because entertaining our anxieties is to say, my own hand can save. And so humility is a strategic attitude. It is something that must uh, attend our way and equip us to stand in days of trial. And at the time when the, these words were written, the church had many things to be anxious about, to be sure, in some ways more than we do. So this, these instructions were imperative 
that they would humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. They had good reason to trust his mighty hand, and it was only pride if they did not cast their anxieties upon his mighty hand to save. Secondly, be sober-minded. These are strategic attitudes. Be humble, be sober-minded. Be sober-minded is the instruction in verse 8. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Sober-mindedness, clear thinking, having your spiritual wits about you. Turn back to chapter 1. There are several other references in the context where Peter builds out this idea of sober-mindedness. 113 is among them. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And so you see kind of a juxtaposition there, an either-or. The sober-minded person places his hope fully on the grace that will be brought to them in fullness at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the promise of the gospel. The unsober-minded person, the drunken-minded person, if you will, is conformed to the passions of his former ignorance. Furthermore, in verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And it goes on to describe the glories of the gospel revealed in Jesus Christ. So you see, if one is walking in a drunken state of mind, spiritually speaking, he will entertain, indulge passions of his former ignorance or feudal ways inherited by his forefathers. Do we not have a ton in both of those categories tempting us to leave the sobriety of spiritual faithfulness and embrace the drunkenness of our age? Now, this idea of drunkenness biblically, we've touched upon it recently in our study of Lot as well. What is drunkenness biblically? Well, we ventured a definition along these lines. It is the suspension of godly faculties, dulling the spiritual senses, falling under the influence of our sinful nature and its unsanctified passions. Spiritual drunkenness manifests itself when we are lazy at our post of guarding the spiritual perimeter of our domain, our own hearts, and in the case of many of us, our own families, rendering ourselves or those in our charge vulnerable to deception and to destruction. So that's what spiritual drunkenness is. That's the opposite of being sober-minded. Now in chapter 4, more on this, it says that the time is past in verse 3. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. He goes on, verse 7, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, and here's the word again, and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And so, you know, the cultural trappings and sins that attended the way of the churches of Asia Minor at this time, they might manifest themselves slightly different than ours. But think of the spiritual drunkenness of this era basically going with the flow of culture. That's what was going on. Now, we don't maybe have, um, you know, paid prostitutes at temples to idols, you know, on every street corner in Cross Lake. But I guarantee you, every street corner in our town and in others 
as fraught with many, many things that are according to the passions of the flesh and not according to Christ. And basically letting the culture and its pressures and direction and the flow of public opinion and what is popular at the time and what is acceptable and tolerated and what is put forth as virtuous by the loud and influential voices in a perverted world, in a secular society, this is the principal equivalent to what the church was dealing with at the time. This is our version of the sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. But the call is, is to be humble and sober-minded. Don't just be caught up in the mainstream flow of things, but maintain your biblical faculties and your sense of spiritual uh, acuteness and awareness, being able to discern and to judge and to rightly divide and to stand, even though we be but a few, on the Word of God. Thirdly, and related to it, be watchful. Humble, sober-minded, watchful. Again, we see in verse 8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. How is the devil prowling around today? How is the devil devouring one-time self-identifying Christians even now? Well, story after story, we were praying about one of them this morning. But story after story across the wire of social media has been coming out of so-called deconstructionism, I don't know if you're familiar with this, has become popular for people who one time identified themselves as evangelicals to announce that they're now distancing themselves or rethinking their worldview or renouncing the Christian faith altogether, and they, they deem it fit to proclaim this to other people. One possible recent example was striking to me in my research for this just because of my own experience. Now, I remember a time when I was pretty young, some of you young people about your age, if you're around 15, 16 in the audience here today, and I was attending a Billy Graham crusade. And that crusade opened up with something, you know, relevant for the youth, so Michael W. Smith was there, and a little band you may have heard of called DC Talk. You guys remember their breakout album, Jesus Freak? I know I'm getting old in the audience. For some of you, it seems like, what are the kids listening to these days moment? But the lyrics of that song, however inarticulate, nevertheless, they were fairly clear. What will people think when they hear that I'm a Jesus freak, there ain't no, it's like, I don't care, basically. There ain't no despising the truth. There was a message of truth in that song that if you're to embrace the call to follow Jesus Christ, there's going to be a whole segment of society that consider you an outcast, a freak, an idiot, a reject, intolerant, hateful, etc., etc. And that pressure exerted on people who once listened to that song over time, if they do not stand on something more foundational than being fans of a Christian rock band, will eventually break them down. How do I know? Well, it seems to have broken down even one of the singers in that very band. Yes, Kevin Max, you know, one of the singers, has announced recently his own quote-unquote deconstruction. And though I don't know that he's come out fully and denied the faith, he calls himself an ex-evangelical now. Evangelical, as I understand it, is one who believes that the gospel alone, through Jesus Christ alone, has the power to save. Now, I have to qualify these statements. I don't know what he thinks it means, but to be an ex-evangelical, if that's what you're putting behind you, he says he now embraces something like the universal Christ. You can see even in his lyrics a distinct change. Right, one time he was taking his stand. I'll be a Jesus freak. No matter what the world thinks, listen to these new lyrics. He's now singing. He says, Jesus, I love you but your followers freak me out. That's a literal quote from one of his recent songs. Jesus, I love you, but your followers freak me out. 
How can you go from a Jesus freak to being freaked out by the Jesus freaks in just 20 years? Well, this happens when you don't embrace the calling of victorious suffering. When you are not humble, are not sober-minded, when you are not watchful. What if I was Kevin Max's pastor? What would I tell him? What should I tell him? I should sit him down and anyone who feels the way he does, a one-time quote-unquote self-identified Jesus freak, now doubting if they want to be associated with these weirdos that believe that Jesus is the only way and are so intolerant to what the culture says is permissible now, we should sit down and they should listen to these words. Be watchful. The devil as a roaring lion is prowling, seeking whom he may devour. Again, words like this, I don't think God, uh, I don't think the God that I believe in is going to just all of a sudden uh, ignore me because I don't believe every single thing that was written down somewhere. It's another quote from an interview with the same fellow. Do you hear what's underneath that phrase? I think there might be, a, he's finding real reason to question perhaps the authority and sufficiency of God's word but sort of couching it in minimalistic terms, pray for this man and pray for any others who are tempted by this beguiling you know, voice in the ear, proclaimed from a culture rushing toward apostasy. And remember, the devil prowls like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And what does that roaring sound like? What does that devouring sound like? Seeds of doubt, the authority and sufficiency of God's word. Among other things, that's what it sounds like. A strategic attitude, a tactic for endurance, suffering under vi unto victory includes humility, sober-mindedness, and watchfulness. Why? Because, as we said before, waiting is dangerous. Finally, be firm. Number nine, or verse 9, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Humble, sober-minded, watchful, and firm. There's parallel language at the opening of 1 Peter that gives us reassurance. In other words, two things are to be retained in our mind at once. First, the danger that attends our way as we're following the Lord. But secondly, there is sufficient grounds for assurance. In 1 Peter 1.4, we are called, as the apostle says, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. There are those who are tempted not to stand on the authority and sufficiency of Scripture, and they need to hear the warning, the devil is a roaring lion, you better watch out. There are others who have staked their claim on the authority and sufficiency of God's word, and what they need to hear is that upon that foundation, they will be kept and the inheritance imperishable, undefiled, and unfading by God's power through your faith. You are being guarded for a salvation to be revealed at the last day. The waiting is dangerous. You have no need to fear so long as you fear the Lord, so long as you stand on Him, so long as, as Paul echoes and puts it so beautifully in his allegory, your feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel and your midsection is girded about with the belt of truth. And then your mind and your thoughts and your worldview are guarded by the helmet of salvation. With the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit, by these implements you will quench every fiery dart of the wicked one. And by these means, as Paul says in Peter Echoes, you will stand firm. These, the scriptures say, 
our strategic attitudes for those who suffer, but suffer victoriously. Equipping the church with the means of grace to stand in spite of trial. How do we stand? We do so by embracing increasingly as the Spirit gives us the ability. We apply the scriptures as we even hear them today. Humility, sober-mindedness, watchfulness, and standing firm. Major point number two. We're going over tactics for Christian endurance unto victory. Not only are we called to assume strategic attitudes, but we are to realize divine intentions. God has purposes in suffering. And this is modeled in the gospel, never more dramatically illustrated than the purposes of Jesus' own suffering. Time and again, the Bible gives us this principle, just like Jesus' body had to be broken and his blood had to be spilled for the remission of your sins, glorious purpose, unto redeeming for himself a people, to be ascended with him one day, to be resurrected in the second resurrection, to join at the marriage supper of the Lamb and glorious reunion, suffering unto glory. So the provisionally speaking, so the sufferings that you are called to endure also have divine intent, glorious purposes. And these are listed in four ways in verses 10 and 11. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Four words of God's divine intent through your own struggle, through your own a walk with him. What is he doing along the way? What is he accomplishing? What are the purposes that he has ordained through your trials? Restoration, confirmation, strengthening, and establishment. Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And then note verse 11. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. I'm not going to go into these four points as, as, uh, detail, in as detailed a way as we did the first four attitudes because I believe that these four points can actually be used as a structure to outline the entire book. I'm going to explore that idea a little more, and then as my tradition, at our last sermon in 1 Peter, we'll do an overview message, and my goal is to use these four points to show how Peter has organized his book to offer hope of restoration, confirmation, strength, and establishment. Nevertheless, a few things can be said. First of all, a time reference, a little while. Note, he says here, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore. Once again, Peter is bringing us up to the heaven's eye view, if you will, or the redemptive history perspective to remind us that though our day-to-day lives seem so long, the difficulties he's called any of us to endure can seem overwhelming. Nevertheless, in the grand scheme of things and the grand scope of his purposes, they are a little while. In the next book, 2 Peter, he will go on to say that a thousand years is as a day and a day is as a thousand years. In other words, the way as we finite creatures mark time and judge the severity of what we go through is different than the metric God uses. So one way to renew our minds is to go to Scripture and adopt his metric. I can endure because other saints have endured before me. I can endure because compared to God's purposes and eternity, this life is but a breath and but a moment. And we can join with Paul... When he says there's so much continuity between the apostles, why don't you turn there with me? It's just such a glorious text. And it dovetails so well. This is 2 Corinthians. It dovetails so well, chapter 4, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, with what Peter is saying. <clears throat> so a fellow apostle of the faith, Paul. Paul, I believe, was a prototype believer. He was called to suffer more than most believers will. 
I believe in part as a demonstration of the power of the gospel. He would say things like this, verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair. You see, once again, Paul uses an analogy, the sort of frail nature of our mere physical existence as it shows itself to fall away and to become more brittle even as we approach death. Nevertheless, the treasure on the inside the faith in Jesus Christ, that abiding assurance of the gospel, it shines all the more in contrast to the weakness of our physical being. He goes on to explain this and finally wraps up some of these words in just glorious language in verse 17. Paul says, For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And then he compares our time here as dwelling in a tent versus the house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens in chapter 5. So here, God's divine intentions are to restore us, to make this tent, uh, yes, this tent by design will rot away, grow threadbare. Nevertheless, He will restore us in perfect fellowship and habitation with Him in that house not made with hands in heaven one day. And this takes a little while, but it is indeed just a little while. There's a paradox here. The trials of the Christian life can be excruciating, and easy to underestimate when viewed simply from our perspective, and if we don't prepare for them adequately. Yet compared to the eternal weight of glory that God grants us by promise in the gospel, they are a slight and momentary affliction. So you see, yes, waiting is dangerous, and it's easy to underestimate trials, but in the grand scheme of things, there is hope that they are judged by God's glorious truth in the promises of the gospel, but a slight momentary affliction. He'll restore us. John 21, 15 through 17, we covered that in our last First Peter series. Peter knows something about restoration, does he not? We mentioned before, this is the apostle that in the heat of the trying moment denied his master, denied his savior three times, yet Peter was restored. Kids, you get, do you remember what Jesus uh, told Peter? He said, Peter, do you love me? Peter said, yes, Lord, I know you love you. And then what did Jesus, I love you. And then what did Jesus say? Anyone know? Feed. You guys remember? Feed my sheep. And then again, uh, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, I know you love you. And again, I love you. And again, Jesus says what, guys? Kids? Feed my sheep. That's right. So Peter was called to be a shepherd, to feed sheep, to be an apostle. But this would be impossible if he did not experience restoration. The man who in his sin one time denied Christ was restored to apostolic office. And the Lord did this even through his own death on Calvary. So the confirmation, the restoration that Peter is speaking of, he has witnessed even personally. Now this confirmation came furthermore as he was called to be an apostle and a partaker of the glory yet to be revealed. He says that in 1 Peter 1 at the beginning of the chapter. He's experienced a strengthening as his faith has grown he has grown more assured and more bold and more consistent, even to keep uh, or, or even to make the last of his words among the most meaningful as he gives instructions to the church, knowing he will soon pass away. Jesus had prophesied that as well. Nevertheless, he believes the church will be strengthened in his absence, even after the last apostle has died, so long as they cling to the word of God. Humble themselves, be sober-minded, be watchful, and stand firm in their faith. By these means and through, by this way, the Lord will restore, confirm, 
strengthen the church beyond just survival mode, beyond that even to bold proclamation, beyond that even to influence, yes, even to missionary work. Finally, there's sort of an ascending scale here. Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you, which is followed by this. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So there's a movement in the text. This is true of all First Peter. It's true of the New Testament, the whole Bible in a way. That the exile and the difficulty and the trials and the pilgrimage gives way to an established reality of co-dominion with the Lord. The church that would be thrown to the lions just years after Peter passes away is, will also one day be ascended, as it were, be lifted up to rule and reign with Jesus Christ in heavenly places. You see, God will establish his work and his kingdom in spite of the trials, yea, even through them. This is victorious suffering that we are called to. So here we have two realities. Peter refers to us, in one sense, as elect exiles. But he also says to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Ultimately speaking, are we exiles? No. In the in-between time, Peter uses this exile status as an analogy. And what does he mean to convey by it? Well, like an exile, we are called to endure. We are called to endure things, uh, you know, in a culture often hostile to our worldview. So it's a helpful analogy for identity, conduct given temptations, for distinction, for cultural hardship, and uh, cultural conflict, and hardships that move us toward kingdom consummation. But ultimately speaking, we are not exiles. Ultimately speaking, we will rule and reign with Christ. No, and this is how I know this in verse 11. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. If Jesus Christ owns the kingdoms of the earth, then are we exiles? No. We are ambassadors. We are agents. This is ultimately speaking. It's helpful to understand the nature of our suffering to draw encouragement from the saints who were exiles who went before. But even there, that exile status was only provisional. The Lord would restore Israel though she would be in exile for 70 years. And the Lord is bringing his kingdom, though his people are called to suffer in the meantime. Since Jesus Christ owns everything and received the title deed and claim to the kingdoms of the earth at the ascension, at the ascension, which was prophesied by Daniel 7 and fulfilled at the beginning of the book of Acts, we are now ambassadors to rule and reign with Christ, to announce and proclaim his authority. And yes, we might be killed for saying these things, we might suffer along the way, but there are times when God has greatly encouraged the church by showing his sovereignty, even over the principalities and the princes that ruled the air and inform, you know, the so-called rulers and tyrants of our day. This was the experience of Peter. This is the experience of the early church. And by his grace, it will be our experience as well until the day when the manifest dominion of Jesus Christ is absolutely undeniable to every living creature. And on that day, eschatologically or future speaking, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Remember this. This is God's divine intention, even through suffering, to restore, to confirm, to strengthen, and to establish his church. Final point this morning, tactics for Christian endurance. We're assuming strategic attitudes and our call to Christian endurance, realizing God's divine intentions. And finally, there are some consolations some reassurances that we are to embrace along the way. There's pending exaltation. This relates to what I just said, but let us note in verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. 
Do not forget that the second class status, that the marginalization, that the mockery and the scoffing that you endure as an unashamed proclaimer of Jesus Christ, as an uncompromising Christian who stands upon, let's say, the created order worldview of the Bible, which is under direct assault in our culture today, if you stand there, though you are maligned right now, nevertheless, at the proper time, he will exalt you. Yes, even today, the bitter fruit of God's judgment for our grotesque rebellion against him is starting to fall upon us as the chickens of our apostasy and secularism and foolishness and absurdity come home to roost. And I predict in the not-too-distant future that one of the great calls of the church will be, disciple to be, will be to disciple a generation and a culture whose fallout because of their unbelief is so great that they've mutilated themselves, they tortured others, and they're finally at a point where they can't even sustain their own lives anymore, and more and more and more people will fall into this desperate, almost a category of social suicide that will lead addicts and transvestites and uh, people who have embraced these alternate self-destructive lifestyles and uh, just all sorts of collateral damage of today's worldview to the doorstep of the church. Will we have something to offer? Yes, we will. We will say, silver and gold have I none. I may not be able to restore your material status, but such as I have give I thee. And just as the apostles did, we say, in the name of Jesus Christ, repent and believe the gospel for the healing of your soul. And this is what we are called to do. And if we embrace this, we will see that sometimes in this lifetime, as the bitter fruits of our apostasy bring judgment upon a people until the church begins to shine forth amidst the darkness and collateral damage of whole-scale fallout because of a nation and a people in a world that have rejected him, there is a time when the word of God has the last laugh in the history itself. And if we don't live to see that day, nevertheless, God will not be mocked. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds them in derision. And he will have a day of reckoning. And on that day, he will exalt you. You who trusted in him, perhaps gave your life or suffered along the way for the cause of Jesus Christ. Who are defriended on Facebook because you believe that God created them male and female. Therefore, the two shall become one flesh in biblical, ordered, ordained, and God-established marriage, for instance. You who confess such a thing and pay some kind of social price for it. Nevertheless, there will come a day at the proper time when he will exalt you. You will be lifted up to rule and reign with him, as the scriptures continue to say. Other references echo this. Again, Paul, Ephesians 2.6, 2 Timothy 2.11 and 12. And there's another consolation. That's pending exaltation. So even though we suffer now, there's exaltation to look forward to. There's also the shared experience of our brotherhood that gives us reassurance, hope, consolation. Notice in verse 9, resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. When you pray for the persecuted church, uh, you, it, it's an important thing to do because I know this is true of my own soul. It ties me to their experience in some way. In praying for the persecuted church, I'm praying for my brothers and sisters. But there's one more application of the persecuted church, and that would be this, that if a church exists where it is more illegal than it is in our nation, then they are an example of God's overcoming power in spite of persecution. If a church exists in North Korea, if a church exists in Iran, and we hear tell of this, do we not? If a church exists in communist China, then take refuge, take consolation from this. After all, after you, or after all these are examples of our brotherhood throughout the world who are suffering in some cases worse than we are and are standing firm. This is true, of course, 
of the saints who have gone before. Hebrews 11 documents some you know, typical examples, does it not? Of the saints who've gone before. And of them it was said that many were sawn in two and persecuted and tortured, yet they stood firm. They were nevertheless restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established even amidst these difficult times. So this is the shared experience of our brotherhood. So as we draw inspiration from the persecuted church or those who have gone before us, we can have our souls encouraged and embrace a gospel consolation that God will, in the same way, cause us to endure. And there's something interesting, too. There's just a few, I'd mentioned this before, but in just a few short years, the Christians of Peter's post-Peter era would be literally thrown to devouring lions. Literally thrown. Before they were thrown to those devouring lions, they would give, be given, history records, the opportunity to recant. In some cases, all it would take is a quote-unquote superficial pinch of incense to Caesar. So you had to at least superficially acknowledge the uh, sovereignty of Caesar. Caesar is Lord. And the church said, no, we cannot agree with that creed. Our creed is quite simple. Jesus Christ is Lord. You may ask of me many things and I will comply, but this is a line I will draw. As a Christian who believes that Jesus is Lord, I cannot offer a pinch to Caesar and say that he is sovereign. So what would happen to Christians? Well, among other things, they would be thrown to devouring beasts. Now the Christians who recanted their faith proved themselves to be of no faith at all, apostatized, left their once confessed affiliation with Jesus Christ and threw that pinch to Caesar. They were in a different category. I ask you this, which ones were devoured? Which ones were devoured? There were those who were physically eaten by lions and were immediately ushered into the presence of Almighty God eternally. And then there were those who, for fear of the devouring beasts, were devoured by another beast, the devil, the enemy of your souls. And they blasphemed their Lord and Savior. And if it represented their heart, denying their allegiance to Him, and if they died in that rebellion, they were devoured by the beasts the devil himself, and the jaws of hell opened to receive those who would not declare that Christ is worthy of worship, even unto the cost of one's own life. But there are those who endured, and they are the ones whose shared experience gives us hope. As of yet, though it seems like we're facing a ravenous, devouring culture, we have stopped short, at least in this nation, throwing us before beasts. But is it not encouraging to know that the strengthening and establishing and confirming and restoring power of the Gospels can give you the confidence to face even that eventuality. Finally, personal greetings. What else is there to encourage us in our call? Well, there's greetings and that Peter closes the book with. By Silvanus, verse 12, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So with a little help of companion studies, most scholars agree that Silvanus, this is another word for Silas. Paul and Silas, remember them? Acts 16. And also, what does it mean that I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring this? Well, the word construction in the Greek presumes that Silas was likely the bearer of this letter. In other words, Peter entrusted these words of spiritual life to Silas, who was with Paul uh, in prison, if you remember, in Acts 16, and this church was in, in the loving care of God's servants to such a degree that this letter was entrusted to Silas for personal special delivery for this church that was suffering under these circumstances. Were they worth it? Yes, they were. And this letter has reached us today. Does it not encourage our souls that these words were delivered 
to the church, you know, that preceded us by one who witnessed the bars of the jail busted in the night in an earthquake when God intervened and set Paul and Silas free. Amazing. They didn't even run away. Why? Because they were slaves to Jesus Christ. You remember the story. Kids, do you remember? Paul and Silas were in jail and they started to sing songs. What happened next? Kids, do you remember? What happened? Yeah, very good. The door broke. God sent an earthquake. Their bonds were loosed. The jail fell apart. And Paul and Silas were free. What did they do before they left? They shared the gospel with the guy quaking in his boots. Now, if you and I were condemned to prison, likely facing execution for our professed faith, it's natural to think that we are the ones shaking in our boots. But in a moment, God intervened and the tables were turned. Now Paul and Silas were free and the jailer is shaking in his boots. So when this letter comes by way of Silas, one who has experienced God's delivering power, even over against the bonds of an imperial government like Rome who would slap you into jail for not confessing the sovereignty of Caesar, is it not encouraging to you that this letter would be entrusted? And that's the context in which 1 Peter comes. And I suggest not just to the early church, but to us as well. Furthermore, stand firm in it, Peter says, she who is in Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. Well, who could this be or what could this refer to? Again, scholars are generally agreed that Babylon represents biblically an imperial power that is an enemy of God's purposes and God's people. At this time, Rome is called Babylon in the book of Revelation. That's probably in view here. She likely refers to the church. That is to say, in verse 13, the church in Rome, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. Wait, in the most oppressive culture of all, where possibly Peter needs to encode these words, a church yet remains? In the equivalent of North Korea in the ancient world, a church remains? Yes. She who is even in Babylon, the most formidable of oppressors of God's purposes and people, nevertheless is praying for you and encouraging you. Just like the saints who have gone before, cheer us on, as it were, in the stands of glory. This ends up being a glorious bookend from the beginning of Peter, 1 Peter, to the end. Remember verse 1? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, and so forth. So people who felt estranged for their faith are receiving words of encouragement to endure in spite of suffering. And then the book closes, she who is in Babylon, representing the power to one, at one time to exile God's people, who is likewise chosen, God has an elect people in spite of the worst and most tyrannical authorities, sends you greetings. Brothers and sisters, saints, we join in solidarity with the church of every age, no matter who the tyrant is, no matter how bold and rebellious the authorities are. Nevertheless, there is a church who stands with you, who has stood and will stand in the days that, to come. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And then third reference, so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. And again, the assumption here is this is Mark who traveled with Peter or with Paul and then later resumed ministry with others and is a trusted ambassador and saint. And put yourself in the shoes of these fledgling little churches, just a handful of Gentiles in a pagan culture. And suddenly, encouragement is coming to them by way of written apostolic instruction, by way of the delivery mechanism of Silas, and by way of greeting from the church in, the, in areas even under greater hardship, and by way of other apostolic voices like Mark and the early church missionaries. 
Greet one another with the kiss of love. Suddenly, the bonds of Christian fellowship are all the sweeter when we realize that we share salvation in Jesus Christ in common, salvation from the powers that be and the powers that threaten even our own soul. And that unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace is precious and sweet indeed. Peter closes his book by saying, his letter, Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Are you in Christ today? This communion table will be lost on you. Its meaning will be lost on you if you are not in Christ. None of these promises, none of these assurances will be yours unless you are in Christ. That is to say, if in Christ Jesus died for your sins and transgressions against him, then you understand the meaning of this table and you have peace with God. If you are in Christ and you realize that his victorious sufferings unto glory give you hope, of eternal glory in spite of what he's called you to suffer, if you are in him, that is a powerful, glorious consolation, reassuring reality that will confirm, strengthen, establish, restore you. But if you are not, it will sift you to pieces. and You'll become one more quote-unquote deconstruction story in an age of cultural pressure, placing uh, you know, all of its weight upon you to say you are a fool for believing Jesus alone saves. How can you stand? You can stand if you are in Christ. This morning, the title of our message is Victorious Suffering. And when we look for the most deep and abiding and powerful inspiration to suffer for Christ's name's sake, we need to look no further than His body broken and His blood shed. Before us today, represented in these elements, is proof positive in this object lesson of victorious suffering. How dark the day Jesus died. It was physically dark. For hours, the sun hid its face as the Lamb of God was slain. For hours, the disciples languished in confusion, even denying their Lord, because the Savior, who was supposed to have power over the grave, was killed by the hands of the Roman tyrants. For hours, the earth cried out and the rocks were split in that dark day. Nevertheless, there was but three days later, a resurrection event which changed the course of eternity forever. And in that event, Jesus Christ demonstrated and exercised dominion forever and ever. Amen. And now, by the means of his very suffering, we have victory. Victory over sin and victory to stand when our faith is challenged. I'd like you to think about these things as we partake in the Lord's table today. Let us transition in prayer. Oh, Lord, we thank you for the sweetness of your gospel. We thank you for the reassuring foundations that are found in Holy Scripture. We thank you, Lord, for all the means of grace that you pour into our lives to give us the joy and the privilege and the, and the tools, the armaments whereby we can stand in whatever day you call us to endure. Lord, I pray as this message has gone forth, if there are any in the hearing of its proclamation today who have not repented of their sins, and turn to Jesus Christ. I pray that they would receive no consolation, that they would trust no mighty, quote unquote, mighty hand for their anxieties until they repent and cast their cares on Jesus Christ. First of all, to trust in him to save them from the hell that they deserve for the transgression of his holy law. And secondly, to joyfully embrace the call unto eternal life as they join us in the fellowship of the brethren who have gone before and in encouraging promises of the gospel. Thank you, Lord, for these things. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.